0: Hello, it's Paul back with a brand new episode of the When in Spain podcast. Thank you for joining me. It's great to be back. Sorry, it's been uh, such a long time since uh, the last episode, I think uh, over a month. Um, Well, I've been busy getting married, as some of you regular listeners uh, might know. Uh, I tied the knot with Karina. ...on the 26th of June, so we were busy with all of that. And, uh, well, this is my first When in Spain podcast episode as a married man. Wow. And I can say that everything went well, uh, well, apart from Karina arriving about 15 minutes late to the church, I was uh, stranded at the altar <laughs> with the priest making jokes. I think he said something like, this would never happen in your country, would it? But in the end, she arrived. We had a lovely day, lots of fun and laughter and food and drink and frivolities. And uh, I'm sure at some point in the not too distant future, we'll make an episode about getting married in Spain because because it involves a lot of jumping through hoops and paperwork, that's for sure. Incidentally, this is also the 100th episode of the When in Spain podcast, I'm pleased to announce. I never thought I'd make it this far. 100 episodes over the last two and a half years, three years, maybe. And um, well, it's all thanks to you guys, the listeners who have continued listening and supporting the podcast, especially a big thanks to the patrons who have continued to support the podcast financially as well. I think without whose help, I probably would have given this up quite a long time ago. So anyway, in this episode, I'm going to be whisking you off to the Costa Brava up in the northeast of Spain in the northern half of Catalonia. Uh, me and Karina took a little road trip up there. Uh, we're now sadly back in Madrid but uh, we did it as a kind of mini honeymoon. We decided that we weren't going to go anywhere too far away. What with everything going on with uh, Covid and international travel being a bit tricky at the moment. We thought why not jump in the car and explore a corner of Spain that neither of us really knew very well. In In fact, we realized that there was so much more to see and do that we didn't manage to tick off our list. So I'm really hoping that uh, we get back to the Costa Brava sometime soon. I really fell in love with it. What a beautiful part of Spain, especially the coasts, the beautiful rugged beaches and coves. And that's where I'm going to be taking you in this episode Our first stop was in Tossa de Mar. We used that as a base to explore uh, that part of Catalonia with a focus really on the coast. And then our second stop was a few hours further north, about 30 kilometers south of the French border in the beautiful little fishing town of Cadaqués. Along the way, we made numerous other stop offs, which I'll be talking about in the episode. I'm hoping this is going to be one of those armchair travel uh, episodes where you'll hear lots of sights and sounds of the places we visited, including the relaxing beaches and coves beautiful back streets of the little towns we visited, hustle and bustle, church bells. Along the way, I'll be describing the places, of course, giving you my observations and thoughts on them. I'll be also including a bit of history and culture about the various stop-offs as well. All the stuff that you guys, Spain fans, really, really love. Just before we get into the road trip to the Costa Brava, I would just like to go back and mention the patrons who support the podcast because uh, during the last month or so, I had a wave of new patrons signing up to support me and I'd just like to give them a little name check as I always do. So a big, big gracias to Bob and Liz G, to Irene and Keith Barron, Carrie Stevens, Danny Sabota, Ross Musgrove and Victoria B. Martinez. Thank you to all of you for signing up to support the show via the crowdfunding website Patreon. And if any other listeners enjoy this podcast and would like to show a little bit of support, uh, you too can sign up to become a patron of the show at patreon.com. Forward slash when in Spain. As you might have heard in the background, I've got doors slamming, I've got noise from the street. Yes, we are back in the center of a noisy Madrid. Uh, and uh, to be honest with you, the tranquility of the Costa Brava and its little fishing villages with turquoise crystal clear waters now seem like a distant memory, even though it was only uh, a week or so ago. Do stay tuned to the end of the episode uh, for some practical advice about traveling around the Costa Brava. I'll also talk a bit about the Dalí Museum, which we visited in Cateches, which I didn't actually talk about or record uh, in the body of the episode. I'll also be talking a little bit about uh, food and drink as well. Okay, vamos a Poreo. Let's go and take you guys off to the beautiful Costa Brava que la cereza no la puedo Uh So that was a bit of market sound from a little Thursday morning market right here in Tosa de Mar. Tosa de Mar is where we are on our little road trip up to the northeast of Spain, the Costa Brava, as many of you will know it. And we're in a beautiful little town called Tosa de Mar, pretty well known on the Costa Brava, described as one of the jewels in the crown of the Costa Brava. And it's actually somewhere that I'd come to as a kid when I was about seven or eight years old, I think in 1986. And it's quite uh, surreal to be back here now in my early forties. It hasn't changed very much, I have to say. It's one of those, I suppose, resort towns, you could call it, on the Costa Brava, which kind of has two sides to it. And I suppose three sides to it, I would say. You've got the kind of modern hotel development on one side of the town and going up towards the back of the town and into the hills. You've got three beaches, quite small, quite pebbly. So we just hopped onto the main beach of Tosa de Mar, locally known as Placha Gran, Uh, the big beach, I guess. The most notable feature of Tosa de Mar for anyone visiting here, you will notice immediately uh, from the main beach from the town and of course the many photographs you see of Tosa de Mar is the Villa Bella Encenta which is the enclosed old town. This is the only example in fact of a fortified medieval town still standing on the Catalan coast. Its origins are in the 12th century But its appearance today dates back to the end of the 14th century, still has its entire original perimeter, fortified ramparts which you can walk around. And these ramparts are interspersed with three cylindrical towers with parapets and on top of the hill there is uh, a lighthouse. Once you get up into the medieval part of the town, it's really beautiful, steep little streets, no traffic, no cars, old stone cottages, beautiful little gardens, there are little restaurants and uh, terraces perched there on the kind of hillside, cliffside, looking out to sea, absolutely spectacularly beautiful. And they have this uh, wall, kind of ramparts, which you can uh, walk along amongst pine trees with beautiful views out into the Mediterranean. Really is something very special, Tosa de Mar. So we're just outside the old medieval ramparts and just walked up a, a little Cobbly slope with uh, restaurants and bars. And as you reach the top, you uh, reach an access with uh, steps down to a tiny little beach. Now, Tossa de Mar's really got three beaches. Uh, one of them though is uh, quite tucked away called Placha des Condolar and to get to it you have to head up alongside the uh, medieval uh, ramparts, these uh, towers. In fact, I'm standing next to one now called Torre Descodolar Condolar oh, o del homenaje. <laughs> Excuse my uh, Catalan pronunciation and as you step up next to the tower you get this lovely fantastic view down onto this small beach quite a few people on there uh, this morning but it's not absolutely packed uh, and it's, uh, it's very small it's probably only about I don't know 50 meters uh, long surrounded by these steep cliffs and dominated by this tower and the circular tower was the largest of the town's existing towers And obviously, strategically, this was very important because you had a perfect view, uh, an excellent viewpoint from which to watch and control boats uh, coming in from the south. Curious thing about it that I like, and I remember doing this when I was a kid when I came here with my parents, is as you walk up and you look down onto the the beach, you can probably hear a bit of wind blowing now as I walk up, is there's a hole in the... Ramparts. There's a hole in the, in the medieval wall and it's probably only about four feet tall and probably about three feet wide. And it's strange because you see people ducking out of this hole in the wall and you just expect it to be nothing, really. When you emerge through the other side of the wall, you are faced with this beautiful little medieval square. Well, I'm just going through it now. Gracias. <laughs> into this little square which takes you out next to the municipal museum which is called the Palau del Batia and it says here on the wall the feudal mayor's mansion Home to the Celestial Violinist, a painting by the famous Belarusian artist Mark Chagall. Uh, it says here, the town's feudal mayor on behalf of Tossa's feudal lord, the abbot of Ripoy, uh, lived here and, and had collection rights. The building was carefully restored and dates to the first half of the 16th century and has housed a municipal museum since 1935. So it's got inside archaeological finds, mosaics from the Roman villa of Amatiers and an important collection of the Catalan and European artists who visited Tossa de Mar throughout the 20th century. But more interesting for me than that is this beautiful little cobbled square we stepped out into with uh, a palm tree in the middle, lots of flowers, and then overlooking this little square, is a beautiful terraza. It's covered with this blue uh, climbing plant or flower called wisteria, which I'm sure many of you will be familiar with, completely covering and shading the, uh, the terraza. Lots of lush cactuses and succulents, geraniums. El millor de Tosa es la ceba yum, el seu perfume, el seu color y la ceba vida. That's a little quote from Josep Pla, who was a Catalan journalist and author. And that is Catalan saying the best of Tosa is its light, its perfume, its color and its life. It's a beautiful tiled sign with Josep Pla looking out to sea and looking out across to the medieval fortress. So continuing our little stroll up through the medieval part of the town. We're now inside the medieval walls and uh, these little streets, quite steep streets, um, are lined with little cottages kind of in natural uh, stone, kind of golden and grey granite really well looked after they used to be fishermen cottages uh, homes to various artisans now many of them have been turned into little gift shops boutiques restaurants just walking past a little little square with a few people sitting out It's about midday we were here last night and it was much busier um, but it's actually lovely to come in the uh, early afternoon and it not be swarming with people this beautiful violet, purple and red burgundia plants growing up all of the little stone cottages here. It's very picturesque and just looking across you see these tiny little windows with their typical pots of bright red geranium flowers in them and just as I look down this tiny little street towards the horizon I can see the sea and I can see a boat carving a white line across the sea in the distance as it leaves its wake and a little yacht. It's a really idyllic view, really really beautiful. Nice breeze blowing. As we reach the top of the, the hill we come out again into a square on one side lined with pine trees and then on the other side of the square takes us to a kind of viewpoint balcony that looks out across the whole of Tossa de Mar. So you can see the main beach of the town. Quite a wide beach, a couple of hundred meters long. It's not a huge beach, and then you have another beach further round the cove. I mean, I'd say Tostumare faces out onto a bay, but it's a very small bay. It's almost almost like a big cove, really. It's not by no means huge expanses of beach broken up by rocks, and then you have a, a third beach uh, as well, which is much, much smaller, and then these rocks taking us out into the sea, and loads and loads of little boats moored up In the bay uh, out in the sea not moored up right next to the beach but they're all dotted about punctuating the bay blue and white and then also from where we're standing now we can see uh, two more of the towers on the ramparts and then also inland across the city and as you look across the city as I am now it's that kind of patchwork of brown and golden terracotta roofs whitewashed buildings granite buildings gold we can see uh the the town's church poking out from the middle with quite a broad facade and a round rose window and a little clock on it which is saying 25 past 12 and, uh, and then the beautiful thing about the topography of Tosa de Mar and many of these uh, towns along the uh, Costa Brava is that behind the towns, rolling hills, I suppose I would say, uh, covered in pine trees, very green. Every so often little villas and houses dotted uh, throughout the hillsides as well. A little bit of cloud coming in off the sea, just touching the peaks of some of the hills. And just next to the balcony is a statue of, curiously... Eva Gardner and the square is actually called Placeta de Eva Gardner. So why is there a statue of Eva Gardner here in Tossa de Mar? Well, It says here, in a peak of jealousy, famous singer Frank Sinatra, Gardner's lover at the time, crossed the Atlantic to be with her. So Hollywood landed right here in Tossa in 1950 to film the movie Pandora and the Flying Dutchman, directed by Albert Lewin and starring Ava Gardner, of course, James Mason and the bullfighter Mario Cabré. Shooting the movie here, as well as the presence of Hollywood superstars, put Tossa on the map. And the year of the movie's premiere, which was in 1951, is widely considered the year that sparked marked the tourism boom in Tossa, and indeed a good part of the Costa Brava. And because this film, which starred Eva Gardner, helped put Tossa on the tourist map, I guess, in the 1950s, that makes sense. The town honored the actress with this uh, bronze statue, which is by an artist from Girona called Cio Abbey, and it was put up here in 1998. Let's look at a bit of the history of Tossa de Mar. While the usual suspects were here, there were settlements during the Neolithic period and it's believed that the area has been continuously populated uh, since that time. Between the 4th and the 1st century BC, the first Iberian settlements appeared, followed shortly after that by the Romans in the 1st century, of course. In 966, Tossa was ceded by the Count Miró of Barcelona to the Abbey of Repuilly. Uh, Repoi, there is actually a town of Repoi further inland from Tossa de Mar. And a couple of centuries later, in 1187, Tossa was granted its own charter by the abbot of Repoi, coinciding with the building of a church just on top of the headland uh, known as Mount Guadi. And there are many remnants of which we can still find today there. Then sometime in the 12th century, the medieval town was walled off and a castle was built the castle was subsequently replaced by a windmill that's not there today but what is there today in its place uh, is a lighthouse. One interesting little piece of modern history about uh, Tossa de Mar is that in 1989 Tossa de Mar apparently was the first place in the world to declare itself officially an anti-bullfighting city so no here, thank you very much. Uh, as many of you will know that actually in the whole of Catalonia, bullfighting is banned. But Tossa de Mar was the first town to, to declare itself officially anti tauramachia Population of Tossa is only 5,500 uh, permanent residents. Of course, that population does swell during the summer months. Uh, it is uh, one of the main uh, touristic destinations on the Costa Brava. In terms of economy, um, you'd think it would be a fishing town with its little bays and beaches and callas. But actually, fishing has traditionally been a relatively minor contributor to the economy here. Historically, the local economy was mostly based on agriculture and specifically the production of grapes and cork. And there was a thriving export market of cork to the Americas, in fact, during the 18th and 19th century. So where I'm standing now is at the highest point of the old medieval ramparts and I'm looking out to sea right now at a viewpoint called Chalet den Bram apparently one of the purest views of the Costa Brava can be seen from here and I can vouch for that we can looking out across beautiful crystal clear waters and really impressive uh, cliffs as well the story goes that uh, in the 19th century uh, a native of Tosa de Mar called Abram Canals Colomer went to Cuba in search of fortune but returned having had no success there and uh, on his return he excavated this viewpoint uh, from the rock to provide views of the stunning coves and cliffs from where we are now if i look directly down i can see the beach the little beach i talked about earlier called Escodolar, uh, along the cliffs to another little cove called saboquera and right in the distance i can just make out the line of kind of high-rise buildings i guess hotels and a thin line of beach um, which is actually Blanes uh, which is uh, just on the mouth of the Tordera River so it's right in the distance so magnificent views from here and the water looking immediately down the cliff from where I am there's a few uh cactuses clinging to the edge of the rocks but immediately down there's a little uh, pool surrounded by rocks and the water is beautiful turquoise crystal clear So I'm now talking to you from a quiet little square called Plaza de Resclesia in the ancient fishing village of Calea de Palafrouxelles. And I'm standing just outside this beautiful, whitewashed, simple church with a plain facade, pale green wooden doors. It's a very uh, tranquil little setting, apart from the uh, noise of a guy unloading a van of Estrella Galicia beer just behind me. You can hear the birds soaring overhead. Uh, the church is called Iglesia de San Pedro and Calea de Palafrugei. It's about a 30 minutes drive uh, north of Tossa de Mar. And we've just walked up through the town. Something that strikes me is it feels very um, high-end uh, compared to maybe Tossa de Mar. We've walked around over a lot of very... Uh, expensive looking holiday villas Um, but you've got these beautiful whitewashed fishermen's cottages as you walk up through uh, the village away from the beach and it's got these beautiful three little coves very small beaches it reminds me a little bit i have to say i mean i know we are very close to the french border even closer than we were down in Tossa de mar Um, We're probably only about 70 kilometres away from the French border now, but uh, Calais de Parafrouges reminds me a bit of the French Riviera, reminds me a little bit of a little seaside village you might find on the uh, Côte d'Azur. The light is absolutely beautiful here. And as we walked up along the seafront, we noticed there was a big uh, stage uh, set up, lots of seating and like a sound stage. But one of the things that uh, Caléa de Palafrougeille is famous for us. It's July Music Festival. It's called the Cap Roig Garden Festival and it usually attracts uh, some quite big names. As we were driving into the town we saw lots of uh, notices, lots of banners on lampposts and trees advertising the festival with many big names from the Spanish world of pop music. So, Calea de Palafrugell is actually one of the coastal centers of the municipality of Palafrugell in the uh, Baix Empordà, And the coastline is um, full of little coves, very craggy and rocky outcrops, uh, very similar to um, Tosa de Mar and of course we are on the Costa Brava and the Costa Brava means the rugged coast and everywhere you go along the coast here is very evident to see and for this reason many of the beaches are very small uh, with only one access originally they would only have been able to be accessed uh, via the sea not so today but uh, it's not so common to see these long wide sprawling beaches in this part of Spain so as I said this Originally was a a fishing village, looted and attacked over the centuries by uh, pirates. Nowadays the main economic activity is of course tourism, Um, but I have to say today walking around the town is very peaceful as you can probably hear. Just the birds. Uh, The beaches were pretty busy, Um, they they are small so they fill up pretty quickly. Uh, The most characteristic uh, place in the region is the historic settlement of Port Bo and Esboltas, which is a street of these porches and large arches facing the sea. These arches connect together various old fishermen's uh, houses. Uh, Nowadays these of course have been uh, converted into uh, private homes, restaurants and little shops. So we're now sitting on one of the tiny little coves of Calea de Palafrugey. There are three, possibly four little beaches, mini beaches, uh, tiny, probably only about 10 meters wide and about 20 meters long, divided up by these big rocks. And some of the rocks have little steps that you can walk down to go and paddle in the little rock pools. Looking out into the bay, I can see dozens of little boats and motor dinghies uh moored up little motor launches going out there are people uh surfing and sailing right in front of me lots of people sunbathing on the beach not much space it's pretty small and uh just behind me uh, a row of little seafood restaurants one's called can palette I think can in catalan means the place or the home of it's a bit like if anyone knows french chez uh, the home of can can palette we're on a little street called calau and uh, we've got terraces numerous people sitting out having wine and ordering their early lunch i've noticed a lot of rice dishes on the menus here in Tosa de Mar and also here and up and down the Costa Brava their own version of paella. Lots of people milling around uh, on the little promenade here. Just above the little restaurants are these whitewashed apartments with their yellow awnings fluttering in the lovely gentle sea breeze. So we drove a few more kilometres up the coast from Calea de Parafrugé and uh, we did a little stop off in a small town called Begur. But actually from the town of Begur, uh, you have very close access to uh, a series of coves with beautiful secluded beaches. Uh, we are sitting on the beach called Placha Fonda, but very near here, you have a whole range of uh, small pebbly beaches set in these uh, tight coves uh, with beautiful clear waters. And really, you could take your pit just around the corner from here. We've got another beach called Four Nails. Another one about a kilometre away called Blava. Uh, which also is home to uh, a Parador hotel. We stopped off there first. Uh, Parking was a little bit complicated there. You could pay to park there all day for 35 euros, which we thought was a bit expensive. And this is obviously because uh, there is a Parador there and uh, the beach effectively is like the private beach of the Parador Uh, which, if you're not sure, uh, is uh, one of these rural hotels, quite high-end rural hotels, uh, usually in historic uh, buildings. So we decided to continue uh, a kilometre or so just along the coast, and as I said, we found ourselves on this beautiful secluded cove. There are uh, a couple of dozen people on the beach, but all in all, a very tranquil and beautiful spot, clear turquoise waters also uh, easy driving distance from Begur you have Agua Freda you have Escaña, uh, Fornés El Racó and another beach cove called Sa Tuna. so I would suggest a little stop off in Begur have a look at the uh, old uh, castle remains it's a small town but it's a useful point uh, to then uh, direct yourself to one of these beautiful little coves if you want to enjoy the beach and the sea one thing to mention is that a lot of these little beaches don't have any amenities by which I mean uh, no toilets uh, no shops uh, no bar no cafe no food and drink what we did is stopped at a, uh, a supermarket on our way and picked up a little picnic and so I was suggesting that maybe with these small beaches near Begur that I've mentioned don't expect to necessarily find any kind of uh, beachside facilities <laughs> So we've driven uh, about two and a half hours up the coast and we find ourselves on Spain's most easterly point. Well it has to be the small and picturesque fishing village of Cadaqués. Probably one of the most well known of the uh, string of towns and villages uh, up and down the Costa Brava. Cadaqués, probably best known for Salvador Dalí. I talked to you. We're sitting on a little uh, cafe uh, right on the harbour front. Uh, I looked at the map and they do describe uh, the area along the harbour as a beach. Uh, in fact, it's called the Playa Grande, Playa Grande, the big beach. It's not very big at all. It's only a few metres wide and very rocky and very pebbly. This is definitely not a kind of beach uh, resort, although there are a few uh, children lobbing stones into the water. Um, and from where i'm sitting i'm looking straight out across into the uh, cove into the bay it uh, uh, feels more like a harbor rather than a beach lots of activity out there lots of boats going backwards and forwards again like many of these calas or these coves up and down the costa Brava, you see dozens and dozens of little fishing boats moored up out in the bay And it's very busy. We're here on a Sunday lunchtime. It's about one o'clock. And I think this is probably the busiest place we've been to up and down the Costa Brava. It's teeming with, well, frankly, tourists like us. Lots of throngs of people walking up and down the harbour side here in front of us. So we we arrived by car. Uh, There are buses uh, that take you to Kadaketh from some of the surrounding uh, larger towns. Uh, One thing, if you're coming by car, you have to park in this municipal car park, uh, the uh, centre of Kadaketh. It is a village. It's an... (laughs) ancient fishing village as you can imagine it is a warren of tiny narrow streets it's impossible to bring your car into the center you park up but then you are greeted with this beautiful walk through the narrow streets of whitewashed houses and it seems to me here nearly all of the houses are whitewashed and they've got these powder blue windows and shutters Uh, this is something that's very obvious of catechesis This combination of blue and white everywhere you walk and also today it's much cooler here in Cadaqués, uh, it's actually quite cloudy, it's the first kind of cool cloudy day, we thought it was almost going to rain, the first kind of cool cloudy day we've had on this trip and uh, Cadaqués is kind of enclosed by the Cap de Creus peninsula so uh, as I look to the right we are surrounded on the right hand side by these, uh, this hillside with the Dark grey clouds just kissing the top of the hills, threatening to descend into the harbour here. Although as I look out across the bay, I can see some wisps of blue sky. So hopefully the sun is going to come out soon. In fact, the Cap de Creus is a national park, which is another draw uh, from this area. Not only Cadaqués, but the surrounding area. Uh, lots of people hiking we saw. Uh, and Lots of people cycling up the narrow road that takes you to Cadaqués. For me, it reminds me somewhat of a kind of Spanish Saint-Tropez, maybe without the the beaches, but uh, in terms of the architecture and the topography. And let's not forget, we are now only about 20 kilometers from the French border. Very touristic, as I'm sure many of you will know. The actual resident population of the uh, village is around 2,000, although, uh, according to what I've read, that could swell to up to 20,000 during high season. And if today is anything to go by with the amount of people thronging around this tiny village it feels pretty swamped today so anyway let's talk about art because catechist has a special place in art history. Why is that? Well of course we often think of Salvador Dalí who lived in a neighboring village a short walk from Cadaqués but actually it was the local artist Eliseu Maifren who was a 19th century artist famous for his charcoal drawings of the local fishermen and Maifren was actually the first modern artist to live in Cadaqués And he gifted many of his works of art of the local uh, fishing scene to the town, including, curiously, uh, a marble top table on which he sketched many of his turn-of-the-century fishermen. Now, Salvador Dali his connection is that he often visited Cadiz in his childhood and he kept coming back again and again and again and eventually kept a home in Portiegat which is the small even smaller than Cadiz a tiny little fishing village about a 25 minute walk from Cadiz and in fact it was a summer holiday in 1916 spent with the family of Ramon Pichot that was seen as especially important to Dali's artistic career. So during the first decades of the 20th century, uh, Cadaqués became uh, an important European cultural center. Many leading artists indeed like Salvador Dali and Picasso, Chagall and Klein uh, found their particular source of inspiration in this beautiful little corner of Catalonia and it's completely understandable when you sit here today and just see how well preserved this fishing village or fishing town is but I guess we could say it, it was Dali who really gave Cateches its international fame. His house in the nearby Port Lligat Bay is today a museum which you can visit. There's also a museum in the Cateches as well, devoted to Dali and numerous other artists who carved out uh, their career here. And because it became such an artistic hub, it of course started pulling in the celebrity crowd and apparently it still does. So with this artistic heritage, obviously today Cadiz enjoys an intense cultural uh, life. It's packed with little art galleries all along these beautiful narrow streets which take you down to this beautiful natural harbour. Where I'm sitting now, uh, looking out to sea, if I look to my right, we've got the the hills just behind the village, but just punctuating this maze of whitewashed houses, I can just see the spire of a church. And that is the church of Santa Maria, uh, a carefully restored church, typical white facade, very typical of the churches uh, in the towns and villages of uh, the Costa Brava. One curious thing I found out about uh, Cadaqués is that in the early 20th century, uh, a large number of inhabitants of Cadaqués went to seek their fortune in Cuba, emigrated to Cuba, and apparently uh, around a third of the population of the village in the early 20th century emigrated to Cuba to make their fortunes. And when they returned to Cadogues, they constructed these large and ornate houses, many of which you can see along the harbour side here. And I think one of the most famous examples, which I can actually just about see if I lean my head out a bit, is called Casa Blava, which uh, is blue house in English, Casa Blava in Catalan. And this is an example of one of these locals who'd gone to Cuba, came back with his fortunes and constructed these really quite um, eccentric houses. If I look at the Casa Blava from where I am, very strange, narrow, thin windows, ornate balcony with gold railings cream and powder blue facade very strange narrow windows with adornments and the I suppose the most notable thing about this Casa Blava is is this strange tiled roofs these very steep beige terracotta uh, style roofs with a ginormous weather vane on the top which looks like it has some kind of dragon or flying creature as part of the uh, the weather vane on top of the house but there are numerous houses like this scattered around the town and particularly along the harbour side. So in terms of cultural offerings obviously you have Dali's house about a half an hour walk from here Um, But there are many other museums and art galleries, as I mentioned, like the Municipal Art Museum, which exhibits work by artists who maintained close links with catechests. Also the Perro More Museum, which brings together uh, works of European graphic art. And there is also an international music festival, which is held every year uh, in the Church of Santa Maria and the surrounding area uh, that I just mentioned. Now as many of you listeners might know I'm a bit of a language geek and I'm very interested in the history and idiosyncrasies of the uh, Spanish language and of course that does include uh, the Catalan language. And because of the uh, geographic location of Cadiz, it's actually very isolated uh, to get here. Originally, you would have only been able to uh, make it to Cadiz via the sea. And uh, if the route that we took coming to Cadiz by a road is anything to go by, really crossing the Cape or Cap de Creus, uh, really gives you uh, an idea of just how kind of remote and cut-off Cadaques was from the surrounding area. And that brought about a linguistic curiosity, I suppose you could say. The village of Catechés actually has its own dialect of the Catalan language. And uh, one of the most notable features is that the definite articles are different from standard Catalan. So, OK, let's look at Spanish first of all. The definite articles are la... For feminine and L for masculine, and in Catalan, the definite articles are la and L also. But here in Cadiz, the definite articles are sa for feminine and S for masculine. So quite often you see names of places, bars, restaurants, uh, towns, villages whose uh, definite articles are SA and S. And this is a feature which is actually shared with a variant of Catalan spoken in the uh, Balearic Islands also. Now the explanation for this is that when the Catalan ruler Jaume I conquered the Balearic Islands in the Middle Ages, he recolonized the islands with people from the Emporda region of Catalonia. The Emporda region is uh, the region where we are now. And because Cadaqués had remained relatively isolated from the surrounding region, uh, the medieval speech patterns uh, have been preserved. And this is also borne out in some of the local vocabulary. One of which is something you will see as part of street names, is this word called "rastej," which is R-A-S-T-E-L-L, Rastej, which actually means a street or really normally a steep slope, of which there are many in Cadiz. And this is the kind of street which is formed from pieces of slate stone which are placed in a vertical position, so they're literally dug into the ground. And these are uh, streets which are very characteristic of the streets around Cadaqués. So there you go, rasteos. We've been uh, pounding the rasteos of Cadaqués, you could say today. So from Cadaqués, we've hopped just across to the other side of the Cap de Creus, which I mentioned earlier, to the town of Roses in Catalan or in Castellano, Rosas. I'm sitting out on a hotel balcony Admiring views of the sea, a very busy beach, and the beach here in Roses is long and sandy and wide and completely different to all of the other beaches and craggy coves that we've visited so far on this trip. This is our last stop. In fact, we actually used Roses as a base to visit Cadaques. Cadaques is only a 30 minute drive across the Cape from Roses. Roses is much bigger, much more of a typical holiday resort. might say. The beach is lined with hotels, it's got much more of a typical holiday resort feel to it, uh, but personally my advice is that accommodation in Cadiz is uh, quite expensive, quite difficult to come by, whereas if you're looking for a cheaper option and especially if you have a car and you want to park your car for a number of days, um, I would say Roses is, is a better option and it's easy access to Cadiz anyway. Uh, And there is the sound, which I'm very used to hearing in Madrid actually, of the afilador, the knife sharpener. Uh, That sound of the kind of pipes you can hear, or I don't know, like tin whistle, flute, whatever you want to call it. something that i'm used to hearing in madrid uh when the guys go around their bikes offering their services to sharpen any of your knives um that's the sound you can hear now did not expect to hear that in a holiday resort except this guy is driving around in a van with a loud speaker rather than actually playing the pipes anyway i digress here we are for our last couple of days in roses now when you look at roses compared to many of the other smaller old traditional uh, towns and villages that we visited on this trip you might not think too much of it Uh, it's quite modern as i said lots of hotels it does have uh, an older town but actually the origins of rosses go back a long way and it's got quite an interesting history behind it which is what i wanted to talk about now there is a theory that it was founded back in the 8th century by greek colonists from the greek island of rhodes however most historians seem to concur that it's actually more probable that Rosses was founded in the 5th century by Greeks from nearby Massalia. Massalia being the Greek name for the French city of Marseille, with perhaps a mixture of colonists from the neighbouring Emporion, which is a little town just along the beach from Rosses now known as Empurias, where there are in fact remains of a, a Greek settlement there. So hard to believe when you see the string of modern hotels and bars and neon lights and music uh, along the beachfront in Roses that its origins go back as far as fifth century B.C. Um, There are also remains from the Roman period that go back to the second century, and it's believed that the Romans actually abandoned their nearby settlement. Um, But there is also a fortified settlement going back as far as the Visigothic period, uh, which has been excavated, and that's actually something that you can go and visit. We didn't go there, but uh, there are Visigothic remains called. Trump. Now as we move forward in history to the uh, 16th century Orosis had a very turbulent history in fact uh, it uh, suffered repeated attacks by privateers from North Africa and in fact to counter that threat Charles V ordered the construction of extensive fortifications uh, in 1543 and those fortifications were put to the test by a naval squadron led by the Turkish Admiral Barbarossa uh, who attacked and plundered the town. Then there were substantial revisions to the fortifications again uh, around 10 years later under Charles's son Philip II and then eventually the entire medieval town was enclosed by a pentagonal wall and eventually the defensive system was supplemented by the Castel de la Trinitat, which you can still find remains of today around two and a half kilometres to the east of modern day Roses. In the following centuries, more violence, the fortifications were severely tested. In 1645, during the Catalan Revolt, French troops besieged Roses and captured it. And then following the Treaty of the Pyrenees in 1659, uh, the town was again restored to Spain. Then in 1693, during the War of the Grand Alliance, the French captured the town again. This time the French occupation lasted until the Peace of Ryswick in 1697. Then Then in 1712, during the War of the Spanish Succession, Austrian troops tried to take the city but were eventually driven off. Then in 1719, during the War of the Quadruple Alliance, the French attacked again but failed to take the town. So then, after a relatively long period of calm, the wars of the French Revolution ushered in a new round of hostilities. In seventeen ninety-three, the French revolutionary government declared war on Spain, and in seventeen ninety-four, the revolutionary armies invaded Catalonia, giving way to the siege of Roses, which lasted from the twenty-eighth of November, seventeen ninety-four, until the third of February, seventeen ninety-five, when the garrison was safely evacuated by a Spanish naval squadron. The town was surrendered to. France but the war between France and Spain ended at the Peace of Basel signed in July 1795 and of course the city quickly returned to Spanish control. And finally the fourth and last siege of Roses happened in 1808 when Emperor Napoleon I of France of course forced King Charles IV of Spain and his son Ferdinand to abdicate and installed his brother Joseph Bonaparte to the throne. When the Spanish people revolted against this high-handed behaviour as they described it, French armies once again invaded the country in the Peninsular War and during that operation the Scottish Royal Navy Captain Thomas Cochrane assisted the Spanish by putting his men into the aforementioned Castel de la Trinitat to help defend the town. Thomas Cochrane stayed until the citadel and the town surrendered before evacuating himself and his men and in 1814 when the defeated french withdrew from spain they blew up the town's fortifications along the castel de la Trinidad, and this time the ancient town then known as Ciutadella was completely ruined Uh, Meanwhile to the east the more modern town slowly continued to grow uh, which is the town of Roses that we know today. One other interesting thing about Roses is worth mentioning is that it was home to El Bulli, one of the world's most famous restaurants. I'm sure most of you have heard of El Bulli uh, headed up by the chef Ferran Adria. It's no longer a restaurant. The restaurant closed down I think back in 2011 but it was a three Michelin star restaurant just outside the town of Roses but today uh, those premises stand empty. There was talk of it being turned into a culinary academy just a few kilometres along the coast from Roses and we didn't have time to go there but I think it's quite interesting to mention this is the town of Empuria Brava which is just located on the Gulf of Roses and it's surrounded by a huge natural park called Aiguamoyes del Empordà. And well, Emporia Brava is home to the largest residential marina in Europe. I've heard people refer to it as the Venice of Spain and it has 24 kilometers of navigable waterways all lined with private apartments and houses. And this residential marina was actually built on a swamp and it was completed back in 1975. We didn't have time to go there, we weren't particularly uh, interested but if you're interested in boats and huge marinas you will see each house has its own private mooring for the owners yachts and boats. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that little dose of Spain escapism. If you're not able to make it here at the moment, all I can say is that I heartily, heartily recommend uh, exploring the Costa Brava. Now, as you may have realized during the episode, we uh, had thought about visiting the city of Girona and also the city of Figueres as well, which also has uh, strong Dali connections. Quite simply, we just didn't have time. And I think our inclination was more to spend time next to the sea rather walking around cities. So I'm hoping in the future I can do an episode about Girona. I've heard amazing things about it. I'd love to visit the city and of course Figueres as well. So Karina and I uh, drove uh, from Madrid to the Costa Brava, a long journey. We did a stopover for one night in Zaragoza, which I have done an episode about in the past. So if you're interested in the beautiful city of Zaragoza, do check back the past episodes for that. Um, it's a long drive from Madrid, uh, about seven and a half hours non-stop. But if you're travelling internationally, certainly within Europe, the Costa Brava's principal airport is in Girona. I'm guessing if you're flying from outside of Europe, you'd have to make a connection in Madrid and then make a uh, make an onward flight to Girona, which is only about, I think, half an hour, 45 minutes drive from the coast. I think the important thing to mention is if you really want to benefit from all of those secluded beaches and coves, um, you're going to need a car. Really, public transport trains and buses do exist, but it's going to be a lot more tricky to really get off the beaten track and find those really secluded places uh, that we were lucky enough to find. On the other hand, having a car in those small towns and villages like Tossa, Cadaques, Cala de Parafoujé. Uh, and a few other places that we stopped off along the way Uh, they're not car friendly at all it's very difficult to park we spent so much time driving around in circles trying to find somewhere to park quite often ended up parking right out the center and having to walk in Um, so just take that into account especially with cateches uh, basically no cars are allowed to drive into the center as you may have heard there are lots of mopeds whizzing around Um, but it's impossible to park and you have to park outside if you're looking at uh, renting accommodation in somewhere like Cadaqués or indeed Tossa de Mar or uh, staying in a hotel do check out its location do check out to see whether it has uh, car parking available because uh, I think that that could be problematic it's something that we found uh, uh, a bit annoying actually but again on the other hand a car is really beneficial for getting off the beaten track the other thing I wanted to talk about was the uh, Salvador Dalí Museum, which is near Cadaques It's about a 25-minute walk from Cadaques It's not his house; isn't in the Cadaques itself. It's in the next village along, which is a, a pleasant, uh, fairly easy walk. When we went, we had to make reservations online in advance. That was the only way. You cannot just show up and book tickets. I think that's just because his house is, you know, quite small. Really, it is a house and small olive garden and i'm sure it's for that reason and probably even more so now because of covid restrictions they have to uh, limit the uh, capacity the amount of people they can allow in so do take that into account you will have to book in advance we only booked about an hour or two in advance The entry is, I think, 14 euros per person. That gives you access to the house and the gardens. It is super eclectic and eccentric, as you would imagine from an artist like Dali. Well worth it, I would say. Um, You only need a couple of hours there, but there are some really wacky installations, and I guess uh, famous for the white eggs, which are on the roof of the house and uh, in in his olive garden as well. So in terms of food and drink then, one of my favorites subjects um you're going to find obviously lots of fish and seafood one thing and as i mentioned in the episode everywhere we went in every restaurant on every menu lots and lots of paella we didn't actually eat any uh, paella we favored fidoir which is uh, kind of similar i guess except instead of rice they use this uh, short cut thin pasta uh, with fish and seafood Something else that we noticed on many of the menus was gilt head sea bream, which you'll see everywhere, uh, referred to as orada in catalan or dorada in uh, spanish and it's usually baked in salt or quite simply grilled very simple and delicious another thing you'll find everywhere is alioli alioli the garlic and olive oil sauce a bit like mayonnaise i guess that comes as an accompaniment uh, in many places another thing we saw was a kind of stew called escudella y carne de olla which is several meats potatoes vegetables chickpeas uh, very hearty Um, It has uh, various other names depending on where you are. It had another name in Tosa de Mar, but I can't remember what it it was called now. Um, Again, it's not something we tried because it was very hot, very humid, and we didn't fancy anything so heavy. In terms of breakfast, the classic am tomaguete, which is a toast with tomato rubbed on it and a sprinkling of olive oil. Another common breakfast as well, everywhere you go, you see uh, on menus something called a bikini, which I was quite intrigued about, and a bikini uh, down here in Madrid, we quite simply call it un sandwich mixto which is this toasted sandwich with cheese and ham inside it but it's called a bikini in catalonia and i was intrigued to know why they call it a bikini in catalonia so i did a bit of research and i thought i would just share it with you and the story is Nothing to do with the uh, swimsuit, it's actually named after a Barcelona dance hall called Bikini, and the uh, dance hall used to exist on uh, the Diagonal street in Barcelona. And it opened in 1953 and one of its peculiarities was that it had an outdoor area with built-in miniature golf. Yeah, and the other curiosity was that the house sandwich at the Bikini Dance Club was a kind of copy of the French croque monsieur. So the place and its sandwich became so popular in the city of Barcelona that people began to ask for a bikini in all of the bars in Barcelona, and over time this spread all across Catalonia. Interesting. So, of course, to wash down all of that food, you're going to need something to drink, and the Costa Brava has its very own denominación de origen, which is called the D.O. Emporda. So keep an eye out for that on the menus. That's the local wine and of course the area also produces Cava, the sparkling white wine. You'll see that everywhere you go as well available on the menu to order by the glass or by the bottle. And in terms of beer, well no Mao like I'm used to uh, down here in Madrid. Uh, I think everywhere we went uh, the beer that was on tap was Estrella dam which is the uh, barcelona beer we also saw uh, a lot of times a beer called moritz which is also from barcelona uh, as well i believe okay so there you go any other things to mention yes one other thing i wanted to say that uh when we were there most places we went to um Felt very quiet for the time of year, considering we were there at the end of June, which is really the start of the uh, holiday season. Everywhere was pretty quiet, and uh, I think it's important to take into account that the reason for that is, of course, COVID. There was tourism, there were tourists. I didn't really notice any Americans or Brits, but there are a lot of French, Germans, and Dutch. Just something to take into account that if you're ever visiting in the future when things uh, get back to a bit more normality and you travel there, the Places that we visited may be a lot busier than they seemed uh, when we visited them. It's a very popular tourist destination uh, in the summer months. And so my advice would probably be to uh, visit in the shoulder seasons. And uh, I think really for the better weather, I would say uh, September would be a good month to visit the Costa Brava. If you go the other side of the summer, April, May, I would say that the weather is usually more unreliable. So that's it. I'll stop waffling on. Thank you for listening. Um, I'm recording another episode tomorrow. So there'll be a brand new episode coming out next week as well. Back into the swing. Now that I'm married and back to normal and all of that is done and finished, I'll be back into the swing to bring you a regular episode, hopefully every week, if not three episodes per month. Just to say, uh, if you'd like to see some beautiful photographs and videos, do check out the When in Spain Instagram account. Uh, the handle is uh, at When in Spain One. Uh, and you can uh, put some pictures to the uh, sounds and descriptions that I've given uh, in this episode. So until the next time, I will bid you all, hmm, let's think, let's do it in Catalan, shall we? I will bid you all, adeu. <music>